0: Special privilege this morning to hear from one of our our good friends, John Kraft, who uh, ministers here just a little bit north of us, over at Rhodes uh, College, uh, doing the Reformed University Fellowship there. And so we're just so thankful for the way that he loves some of our students uh, who are members here, uh, but the way that he loves the, the the neighborhood, loves our our whole community through his his acts of teaching and service uh, there. So please welcome John Kraft as he leads us in God's Word this morning. Oh, thank y'all. It is a privilege to be here with y'all again. I hope y'all had a great Thanksgiving, and it's exciting to be here uh, for the beginning of the Advent season. It's always fun. Um, And we're going to look at Genesis 4 this morning. It's printed in your bulletins. And uh, as we approach, uh, just... For, for those who don't know, previously coming into this, this chapter in Genesis, we have just had the story of creation, the story of Adam and Eve, sort of the story of perfect utopia, the Garden of Eden, and how we were created to be, in the image of God, and then we have the fall of mankind and, and Adam and Eve sinning, and, and there being sort of the, the world kind of being full of brokenness and evil all of a sudden. And so that is sort of the picture of, of kind of, as we come into Genesis 4, there's sort of this sense of, of what now? How can man and God uh, be mended? How can that relationship be mended? How can we, you know, move forward Uh, and kind of living out how we were created to live out. And that's kind of what we have here with Genesis 4 and and Cain and Abel and their relationship with God. And so we're going to contrast them and look at that. And uh, I know it's a little longer of a passage, uh, so bear with me. I feel like a lot of us, uh, if you've grown up around church, you know the story of Cain and Abel, but very rarely do we read the whole chapter, which I think has a lot of very interesting insights into it. So let me pray, and then we'll uh, read the passage. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you uh, for the gift uh, that is uh, that your son. And I pray that, uh, that the gospel will be known, that we will be encouraged uh, as we read the scriptures this morning. I pray this in your name. Amen. Genesis 4, starting, verses one, uh, starting verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door." It's desires for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he had built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irid and Irid fathered Mehuel, and Mehuel fathered Methushel, and Methushel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Adah, and the other, Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain, who was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was, Na- was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Adol and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has anointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, also a son, was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So, as we come to a a very strange story to some of us, a very familiar story to others, and then sort of a strange kind of descendants, you know, the first question that I ask when I read uh, the passage is kind of this glaring question. Why Abel... And not Cain. Why does God accept Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's sacrifice? What is going on here? We see that both sons bring worthy sacrifices, one from the field, uh, one from a garden. Both appear to be very hard workers. You know, outwardly they appear the same. However, God only accepts Abel's sacrifice. Well, we see that. That it is the heart. The passage shows that it is the heart of Abel and Cain that actually separate them, because outwardly they are the same, but inside they are different. You see, Abel is obviously bringing a sacrifice in response to what God has done. Verse four gives some clue because Abel brings a firstborn. You can wait. You can you know can wait to see how you did, and then tithe at the end of the year. Or you can bring sort of immediately, the, the firstborn, you can bring it to God immediately. And it was like Abel was so excited to bring an offering to God. We also get help here from other passages in Scripture, uh, like Psalm 51, 15 through 17, says, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will, do not, will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And then later in the New Testament, Hebrews 11, verse 4, says that by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, Abel still speaks. And so these two passages along with the, the rest of the context show us that Abel's that sacrifice was made with a contrite heart. That it was made with faith. That he is responding to God's love for his family and for him. And what is faith? You know, it's not just in a sense a belief in God. Cain believed in God. He, he had conversations with God. But Abel rested in what God had done and in his promises and in who God was. Faith is actually resting in God's love for us and who God is and what he's done for us. Cain's offering was not done out of response to God's love. You know, some might say, as some commentators do, that that maybe Cain was just kind of going through the motions but, but if Cain was just kind of going through the motions in his sacrifice, and his heart you know, wasn't totally in it, then why would he be so upset that it was rejected? He, he, was very, he took it very personally that God did not accept his sacrifice, so much so that he was envious of his brother. What we see is that Cain was trying to earn God's favor with his sacrifice, with his hard work. He was trying to merit God's approval. Basically, his offering to God was bribery. Cain's sacrifice was then rejected as a bribe, and this made Cain very, very angry. You know, he was the firstborn in the family. His mother had been blessed at his birth. You know, he works the ground just like his parents, and he probably worked harder for all we know. But you see, we don't worship God and go to church so that God will like us and so that God will reward us. Because this is, in a sense, kind of just another way of doing divine bribery. You know, it's similar to the pagan sacrificing of the times. We actually come to church, we worship God as a response to his love and grace for us. And that's what Abel did. You know, people often, uh, when I talk, you know, at Rhodes College, often when I talk to students, people describe belief in God uh, it's sort of like believing in sort of a, this Santa Claus who lives in outer space, sort of, you know, punishing and rewarding people, sometimes seemingly haphazardly, you know, sometimes by kind of this conservative moral code. You know, uh, others will say, you know, they kind of believe in karma, uh, that, you know, basically they do good things, they'll get good things back. If they do bad things, uh, that they'll get bad things back in the sort of sense of karma. And this isn't actually too far from the original audience of Genesis 4. The original audience would have experienced Egyptian worship or would have experienced sort of Canaanite worship, where you bring things, you bring your stuff to the gods so that they will reward you or give you what you want. And you worship certain gods to, that because they have certain powers to give you what you want. You know, to contrast that, Abel is saying, Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for showing favor to me, a sinner, because it's by faith. Because you have loved me and my parents, and you've given me everything I need, I will freely offer this sacrifice in worship. That it's just a response. You know, Cain expected to merit God's favor. He was saying, God, look how good I am. Look at what I've accomplished. Look how hard I've worked in my garden for you. You know, look at what I've given up. For you, now reward me. And so you see there's a big difference between Cain and Abel. That that Cain is sort of legalism, whereas Abel is about grace. That Cain is about rules and and following a God of rules, whereas Abel is about having a relationship with God. Cain is, you know, nice, good, church-going people, whereas Abel is have mercy on me a sinner. Cain is living by works, whereas Abel is living by faith. And what happens when you see God the way Cain sees him? Well, you get mad and angry at God when things do not go according to the plan, when God does not give you what you want. And I remember in high school all the time, uh, this is what I would do, Uh, that basketball tryouts were coming up, Or or a dance was coming up where I wanted to ask a certain person to go. And so what did I do? I made sure that month to pray every day, to do my quiet time, to, to attend youth group, to be nice to my sister, to do all these things. Because I felt like if I did these good works... If, if I, you know, was pious and devotional, then God would reward me with letting me make the basketball team, with having that girl say yes to me when I asked her to the dance. That that was the way I thought. And unfortunately, I found that I have not grown out of that as I've gotten older. That, that I still think that, that God will give me good things uh, if I do things to please him. That I have to earn this approval. You know, and this is why uh, this passage, in a way... Just like, just like Cain should make us a little frustrated, a little angry. Because, because God does desire for you to be happy. God does desire for you to love others as you work and rest and, and, and to worship him. But God doesn't really care how successful you are at your job or in school. He doesn't, you know, your grades, your resume, your house, your car none of those things make him love you any more than he already does. In fact, how well you love him and how many things you do for him or because of him does not make him love you any more or any less. You cannot earn or work for God's love and approval. You know, whether you made an A or a C or an F-, whether the last month was successful Or a failure in your mind at home or at work will not change at all how God feels about you. And do you realize this? Because I know for me, I spend a lot of time in my life thinking about how successful I can be at work and home. And it consumes me. And yet, that doesn't seem to be something that God cares about. You know, there are two ways to approach God, responding to what he has done for you and promised to you with gratitude or trying to earn his approval each and every day, continuing to want to justify yourself before God. You know, one approach I believe brings joy and freedom when we are responding to God's goodness, when we accept and rest in the fact that God cherishes and delights in you and in me. And if we actually believe that, then we might actually go to worship him gladly. We might actually pray to him joyfully. We might actually be motivated by his perfect, unconditional love for us to go live for his kingdom, to go love our neighbor. Or we can always be performing. We can always get on that hamster wheel. And I found that in my life as a Christian, I'm often more practicing sort of ancient Egyptian and Canaanite paganism than I am actually practicing Christian worship by how I come to God. Eugene Peterson uh, says it this way, very interestingly. He says, we've all met a certain type of spiritual person. She's a wonderful person. She loves the Lord. She prays and reads the Bible all the time. But all she thinks about is herself. She's not a selfish person necessarily, but she's always at the center of everything she's doing. How can I witness better? How can I love my neighborhood better? How can I do this better? How can I take care of this person's problem better? It's always me, 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 disguised in a way that is difficult to see because of her spiritual talk and I think that many times I find in my life this is the way I live and what happens is this eventually leads to anger like it leads Cain to anger when bad things happen it's either because you were not good enough and so you feel despair or it's because God is unfair and he doesn't actually see all that you're doing And, of course, this thought leads to discouragement. It leads to depression, the exact state of Cain here in this passage. It says his face was fallen. And some of you might say, well, what has God done for me? Why should I respond to him with worship? So this is the other thing that this passage shows. It shows how great God is and how terrible sin is. Look at verses 6 through 7. We see that Cain is angry and depressed. God comes to ask why. Notice here already that God is coming to Cain. You know, when we celebrate an Advent, God coming to us. We don't have a distant God who goes away from us. We love and serve a God who comes to us, who pursues us. And God comes to him desiring to get at his heart. You know, he asks questions like a good counselor would. Of course, God already knows. He already knows why Cain is depressed and upset. But God is asking him because he wants him to reflect uh, on why. You know, God doesn't ask questions to gain knowledge. He wants to know what's in our hearts. God asks questions so that we will understand that. So that we bring us awareness and truth. Again, this is no distant God judging us. From afar. Because God is full of love and mercy. He desires for Cain to understand why his sacrifice was different. To let go of this anger and this legalism. And to embrace his love. To embrace the gospel. Because a legalistic view of God brings sin. He's gently warning Cain before Cain does something horrible. And later, when Cain murders his brother, God again does not dismiss Cain, but pursues him and engages him. God shows he is just. He's saying, your your brother's blood speaks to me, crying for justice, and I am a just God. And it shows that when we hurt others, when we sin against other people, it hurts God. Again, this is no distant tyrant. God wants to not just confront Cain, but he wants Cain to understand his sin and understand what his sin has done and the evil that he's brought into the world. When God punishes Cain, you know, Cain has the audacity to complain about the punishment being unfair. But you see, even the punishment is gracious, because a fair punishment probably would have been death. You know, an eye for an eye. That probably would have been justice, especially to the ancient world. Yet God gives a punishment that might allow him to repent. So while Cain can no longer farm, you know, again, the thing he does, his work, the thing he uses to justify himself, he now has to rely on others for food. God wants to bring him into community. God wants to rehabilitate him. God wants to humble him. He wants Cain to understand that he needs people and that he needs God. Further, God graciously puts a protection on Cain because Cain is worried about his life. And God says, okay, I'm going to put a mark on you so now nobody can harm you. And yet Cain looks absurd here because he is upset. Even though God has given him a a way to take away all of his worry. And, and actually, I reflected on this this weekend because, you know, Thanksgiving is something that's always very convicting for me uh, because, you know, everybody starts talking about what are we thankful for and, and thankfulness. And, and it realizes when I examine my own heart how little thankfulness and gratitude I have because I tend to be like Cain. You know, that, that most of the days of the year, probably the other 364 and even a little bit of Thanksgiving, too, if I'm honest, my concerns are what I don't have. My concerns are hope for what I might get in the future. It's it's taking everything for granted that I have and not actually being able to be thankful for what God's given me and what God's done in my life. And it can very easily, you know, lead me to anger at God. God, because anytime we're not thankful, anytime we're frustrated with, with where we are, we're saying, God. You're dumb. Why are you putting me like this? Do you not care about me? And we get angry. And it's heartbreaking to read in verse 16 of Cain going away from the presence of the Lord. You know, why would he do that when God has been so gracious to him? And so I ask you, as I kind of have tried to wrestle with this in my own heart, why do we resist grace so much? Why are we always trying to get away from such a loving God? Why, when we fail and sin, are we running from God when God is actually the person we should be running to? Because God's the one full of grace and love. And further, we see that even Cain's sin has no power over God's gracious promises. Uh, We see in the rest of the chapter that man's still created in God's image, that the man is still doing all these wonderful things in technology, in science, in music, in culture, that, that, that mankind is still creating God's image and doing all these beautiful things. You see that Seth here is born as part of the promised offspring that would eventually lead to Jesus. That Genesis 3.15 that promises that a son will come and that he'll end evil, that he'll end brokenness, and that he'll provide grace for God's people. That it will still come true despite the sin of Cain in killing Adam and Eve's offspring. That, that God will always overcome evil, that even our sin cannot get in the way of God's promises for us. That God's grace overcomes all human sin. You know, the author of Hebrews in 12:24 talks about Jesus' blood as speaking a better word than Abel's. Because, you see, Abel's blood demanded justice. It cried out for justice. But Christ's blood satisfies justice and cries out for mercy. That Jesus' blood satisfies Abel's cry of justice, but also brings us mercy and grace. That this is who God is. This is his story of redeeming a people whom he loves. A God of justice and of grace. A God of holiness and of love and forgiveness. And now look, let's contrast that, who God is, with sin. In 4.7, God says sin is like a predator crouching at your door, desiring to consume you. And and I always get this picture. I had had a really good friend growing up named Chris. And his little brother, uh, just for whatever reason, loved to scare us. And, and we would be, like, 12, 13, and his little brother would hide, like, in Chris's closet for hours just so when we walked in to, like, turn on the Nintendo or to watch TV, he would jump out of the closet at us. And, and it became this kind of running thing where literally I was terrified to go spend the night at this guy's house because his little brother would always be crouching somewhere behind the bed, under the bed, in the closet to jump out and get me. And I always think about that, about sin that that sin doesn't, you know, and sin doesn't just scare you, actually. Sin can consume us. While, while God loves us, you know, sin tries to dominate us. You see, God is warning Cain that the sin of anger, if left to fester in his heart, will eventually come to rule over him. And this eventually, you know, unfortunately comes true. And this anger leads to the murder of his brother, who he loves. And so, we see that sin is deceiving, that we're always sort of rationalizing and justifying the sin in our life. You know, here's some ways I do it in my head. You know, I'm not judgmental or self-righteous. I'm just, I'm just really moral. I'm not unforgiving or unmerciful. I just have really high standards. You know, I don't hate people. I, I don't, you know, I, I love my neighbor. You know, I just avoid some people. You know, because they're annoying or immature or awkward or not like me. You know, I'm not greedy. I'm just accustomed to a certain lifestyle. You know, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I'm really not hurting anyone except maybe myself. I know God says that this is wrong, but I also know that God wants me to be happy, and I think this will make me happy. You know, I don't... You know, I only talk about people behind their back and gossip because I'm concerned about them. You know, this is just who I am. Deal with it. If you can't love this part of me, you can't love me. You know, another one, my addictions, my desires are so powerful, they control me. It's another one I tell myself. When over and over again, the Bible says that Christ has broken the power of sin in our lives. Here's a favorite one of me and my, my kids. They did it first, and whenever I'm confronted on any of these things, what I like to do to justify it is, well, you do this too, and you're, you're a hypocrite for coming to me about something that you do as well, you know, because obviously you know, both of us doing the sin doesn't mean that I'm sinning. Of course, this is like how we do politics today, and this is all me because I'm such a hypocrite. And I'm such a sinner. And I rationalize it. I'm deceived by sin all the time. Because you see, sin gives false promises. You know, sin told Adam and Eve that they would be happy if they disobeyed God and ate the fruit. Sin has Cain thinking that God is unfair, and it consumes him so much that it leads him to murder his brother, which, by the way, did not bring him happiness. And yet, at the time, he thought, the only way I can be happy is to murder my brother. You know, the fruit of sin, and this sounds very, like, old-fashioned Reformed-y, but, you know, the fruit of sin is misery, unhappiness, and death. That's what the Bible says. Cain murdering Abel only brings him misery. And at the time, he thought it would actually bring him peace. And further now, you see that he now fears being murdered, that because he murdered, he now fears it, so much so that God has to put a mark on him, and yet he still fears murder. Now, when we hurt others, we, of course, fear being hurt. It's this vicious cycle that sin brings. This is why the more we lie and gossip, the more insecure and paranoid we are, the more the lies pile upon the lies. You know, the the more we desire and envy, the, the more greedy we are, the less we enjoy the wealth that God's actually given to us. You know, the more we have to win and accomplish, the more others have to fail and lose. You know, sin destroys community. Even just hurting yourself, even when you just hurt yourself it brings shame and walls in your relationships to others. So it really does hurt other people. Sin always destroys community. And here at Cain's descendants, we see build literal walls to hide from men. And you see this horrible picture of the fruit of the sin in Lamech. In contrast to Adam and Eve's wonderful marriage where they were naked and unashamed. And Adam's song about her in Genesis 2, about being bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Lamech, instead, sings a song about himself and how great he is to his two wives. He turns Cain's mark of grace into a mark of vengeance, the code he lives by, that if somebody just injures me, I will destroy them. And we see how sin, a culture of sin, breeds alienation and misery. And so I ask you, you know, who is your master? Who do you come to worship? Is it God, you know, or is it sin? You know, what story do you believe? There's a story of redemption, of a loving God who loves messy people like us. Or do you believe in the false stories of sin? Now, we see that Cain believed in the false story, that his performance brought God's approval, that he could earn God's acceptance, while Abel responded to God's love for him with worship. You know, how do you approach worshiping? How did you come this morning uh, approaching the worship of God? Um, you know, a few years ago, uh, actually when we were in another city, uh, we, we were at the church group and the question was asked, what false stories, what false gospels do you believe? You know, many answers were given to this, you know, because again, there are many false stories. You know, one of the stories that I said was, you know, I said, one of the false stories I believe is I am how other people see me. That's the story I believe. And sin jumps all over that false story. And and it, it, it often makes me a people pleaser. It makes me highly insecure. Whereas God does not say that I have to be cool or successful or smart or well liked to enter into his presence. That I don't have to be those things for him to love me. For me to be created in the image of God. Another person in our group said... I'm going to mess it all up. I'm going to mess it all up. I'm going to be a big failure. But we see in the Bible that God does not demand perfection. In fact, look at what performing brings. It brings the fate of Cain. And look how God treats Cain's failure. Even when he murdered somebody. And yet, he offers Cain grace. He takes care of Cain. He loves Cain. And the Bible is a book of people failing over and over and over again. That's what it's about. And yet Jesus loving them. You know, another said that God, that I feel like God just tolerates me. But God does not just tolerate us. God loves us. God delights in us. God cherishes us. God loves you. And you know what? He knows your sinful heart and the things you've done more than you even know. Sins and all sorts of terrible things that you've done that you've forgotten about, God still remembers and he loves you. He loves you and he cherishes you as his son and daughter. And then he promises, you know what, I'm going to do wonderful things through you. The world is going to be healed, the kingdom is going to to come and I'm going to do it through you. That's what I'm going to do. And you see, these false stories oftentimes lead us to despair, while the gospel, the true story, brings us joy. So, what are your false stories that you believe? You know, your greater your success, they define your worth. You know, my stuff defines me. You know, what is it? Is it that starving or numbing or hurting yourself in all the various ways we do that? will help me feel like I'm in control when actually God says, I'm in control. Is it that you're unlovable when Jesus loves you more than you can even comprehend? That in Christ, you are beautiful and that you have, should have no shame or guilt in this life in the gospel. Is it the story is that I will be lonely my whole life when God says no I'm with you in the Holy Spirit. I've given you this church. I've given you fellowship. And one day I will return and you will never feel lonely again. One false story uh, that, that I really feel a lot, and I feel in a lot of my students' lives, is that life is only suffering and pain. And oftentimes my students feel that, especially during the holiday season. But it's not. But life isn't only suffering and pain. We do live in a broken, evil world. And, and while some of you in here this morning are going through tons of stuff that I have no, that I can't even probably comprehend, God is with you. This church here is for you and with you. And you worship a God who suffered, so that He will return and end all suffering, that pain and suffering. Will be no more. And so this morning, begin to think about your false stories that you believe that make us forget the gospel and how much better the story of the gospel is and how wonderful God is and how he knows all the false stories that we live by each and every day, and yet he loves us still. And every week he comes to us and says, I love you. This is my table. You are my people, and I'm coming to take away all the misery and all the unhappiness that sin has bred in your life. Sin you've done, but sin also committed to you, and I'm going to replace it all with joy. And so as we come to the table this morning, let us reflect on the sacrifices of Cain and the sacrifices of Abel, and remember, as we sang earlier, that all the fitness he requires of you is to feel your need of him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, for your love. I thank you for your sacrifice. I pray that, uh, that, I don't know what's going on with everybody. I know that holidays are hard, are hard for a lot of people, Lord. I pray uh, that as, as we continue worshiping you and as we come to your table, Lord, uh, I just pray that you will encourage us, that you love us, and, and that nothing gets in the way of that love. And that we're just called to respond to that in worship and love of you. Praise your name. Amen.